Regarding my disclosures for this talk, I first want to acknowledge that I was a site investigator for the ATHOS 3 trial a few years ago. Additionally, during the months following the publication of that study in the New England Journal, I was, but am no longer, on the Speaker's Bureau for La Jolla Pharmaceuticals, which makes angiotensin 2. I fully acknowledge that history. However, I would argue that the basis for my conclusions that I'll present during this talk relies on high-quality data obtained in a blinded fashion during the original trial, peer-reviewed publications on the topic, and personal experience with the hormone. Finally, regardless of your interpretation of my degree of bias, you who know me can attest that I only staunchly support those medical therapies that I truly believe to benefit my patients. Just in case we don't, I'll do my best to uh, keep it interesting for you all anyway. So uh, thank you for joining me uh, remotely. Um, you know, I'm going to be talking about one of the topics near and dear to my heart, as many of you know, uh, angiotensin 2 and vasodilatory shock. Um, and, and really want, at the end, wanted to focus on how it may apply in the, our current uh, environment of COVID-19. So without further ado, I'll get started. So my objectives, you know, define shock. I'm, I want to kind of start out with a uh, broad definition and to ensure that we're all on the same page in terms of uh, what I'm talking about. I'll highlight the mechanisms and significance of the importance of uh, maintaining mean arterial pressure. When I talk to you about uh, the history of angiotensin II, it is, as you'll see, not a new drug at all. It was used for almost half a century um, with its first uh, reported clinical use in 1961 in, in a little uh, little known journal called JAMA. And um, it's, a, it's a really, there could be a book on just its history. It's super fascinating. Um, and we're going to discuss a few clinical situations in which angiotensin II may be of particular benefit and why. And uh, we're going to talk about where it could apply in COVID-19 uh, induced shock. So here we are. So my disclosures, you know, I was a uh, site PI for the ATHOS-3 trial a couple years ago. Um, for about a year after that, I was on the Speakers Bureau. Speakers Bureau um, and... Uh, uh, and so I fully acknowledge that I haven't been paid for them, you know, in a couple of years or over a year, some a good amount of time. Um, so nothing of, uh, this kind of relates to that. Um, the, uh, uh, but I guess I am, um, there may, whatever bias may exist. Um, you know, I, as you all know me, uh, well enough, uh, that, you know, I speak my mind regardless of, uh, you know, uh, bias or not. I, and I usually, you know, I try to get on the bandwagon of things I truly believe in. Otherwise, I, you know, I want to be the first to know that if something I'm saying is not uh, the truth, that um, uh, that I, I want to stop what I'm saying, like ASAP. And, and I'll speak the truth, whatever it is, to whomever. So um, I feel strongly about this because I've been knee deep in the data for some time now. And so just because there may have been bias doesn't mean it's uh, not the truth. All right. And the data I present um, is all like highly high quality uh, data and I'll acknowledge the various um, uh, levels of evidence for each if you want. So just a broad um, brush stroke about the types of shock. Um, we all are familiar with them. 
Um, but today I'm going to obviously focus on distributive or vasodilatory shock because it accounts for the vast majority of cases of shock that we see um, in the ICU and in the emergency department. Um, and uh, of the types of vasodilatory shock um, that exist, uh, sepsis is by far the leading cause. Um, and so this is you know, really a, a relevant topic and one which uh, we're all you know, quite familiar, but there are a lot of subtleties, as uh, you all know, to managing it optimally. So what is, what is it ultimately? It's not uh, a certain blood pressure per se. I mean, we have, you know, a pregnant, you know, woman walking around with uh, systolics in the high 80s, but doing just fine. Or somebody with um, a high blood pressure, you know, that uh, may have a lactate, um, you know, of 10. Um, so it's, and, and as uh, Jason and I have worked with microcirculation um, studies over the past, you know, uh, I guess a year or so, um, we see, um, uh, we've seen an evidence of uh, cryptogenic shock or um, basically a malperfusion um, and uh, dysregulation of blood flow and oxygen utilization at a cellular level um, that may not be reflected by um, macrocirculatory um, abnormalities. But ultimately, it's cellular um, VO2 exceeding DO2. So, and the way I think about shock overall is, is this, you know, so preload, obviously, but many times in the inpatient, that's not an issue unless it's hemorrhage. Um, you know, my work down in Haiti, uh, you know, we'll see some cholera. So that's an issue, you know, with your DKA or HHS um, patient uh, here presenting in the emergency department, you'll sometimes see it. But usually it's uh, 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 preload is not so much of an issue in the inpatient. Stroke volume, you know, is uh, I think about that, the squeeze itself. And, you know, we use ultrasound to assess that. And I think of macro circulation. So that's the blood pressure um, element of things. And that's certainly an important component as well. Um, and then microcirculation, as I briefly mentioned, it's uh, those that, um, uh, vasculature that you don't typically think about and that we don't really look at or even a or able to look at uh, without having a proper device. You know, for example, like the one that you may have seen me with that cytocam device. It actually looks at the sublingual microcirculation and can see red cells zipping along. Um, and then um, oxyhemoglobin dissociation. You know, that's something that's uh, rarely discussed, but one that, uh, as I'll talk about later, um, is many times uh, a focus uh, of mine. Um, and then finally, uh, mitochondrial um, uh, uh, function. So we just completed a few months ago the um, enrolling for the Victus trial, vitamin C and thiamine and steroids and septic shock. Um, so we'll see what that shows. But um, I know the vitamins trial came out and a number of other studies. Um, you know, I feel like we still have a lot to learn about that area, but it's certainly a, a relevant one and one that um, I think we'll be focusing on more as over the uh, upcoming years. So, so to touch on all those causes, um, I want to talk about the macro circulation. You know, we talk about um, delivery of oxygen. You know, as, as you all know, it's you know the um, product of cardiac output and arterial oxygen um, content. You know, and the 
the formulas there um, of heart rate, CO2. And now, but let's break it down to stroke volume. That's determined by preload, you know, which is um, determined by blood volume and venous compliance. So, um, and that's something we uh, can discuss a little bit later, but I'll briefly touch on it. Um, as we know, um, and as you all know, working with me, uh, massive volume resuscitation is not the ideal uh, therapy for many patients. Um, and so how do you um, optimize preload without um, paying the price of uh, massive amounts of volume accumulation? And that's, in, in my view, and we'll again touch on it later, um, is decreasing that venous compliance or uh, inducing sort of um, uh, vascular tone to the venous side with um, early pressors um, to, uh, to minimize how much fluid actually needs to be uh, given. There are a few trials going on right now, clovers being one of them um, throughout the U.S. Um, inotropy, you know, just overall pump function and afterload. You know, and systemic vascular resistance is, you know, according to that uh, formula, so 80 times um, uh, MAP minus CVP over cardiac output. Microcirculation. So this is actually an image that um, Andy Deichman uh, and I collected in uh, one of our CAR-T uh, patients that was developing a cytokine release syndrome. Um, so that hopefully will be coming out. Jason's finished up some of the analysis on that, but that'll be coming out hopefully soon. Um, you can see on the left the um, normal vasculature under the tongue. And then uh, uh, what we were able to see in a number of these patients is um, uh, a microcirculatory uh, level of microcirculatory dysfunction that actually preceded uh, macrocirculatory deterioration. So the thought was um, because uh, embryologically um, our splanchnic circulation um, and the sublingual uh, circulation originate um, in the same spot. And so, and we know in shock states that the, the body tries to re- direct blood to the more essential, um, you know, organs, namely the brain and heart, um, and away from the splenic circulation. So, um, although your, uh, blood pressure may be normal, you may have, um, you know, that redistributed blood flow that, uh, may, uh, not fully tell you this full story of the degree of splenic, uh, perfusion. So looking at the sublingual microcirculation as a um, surrogate for the splenic circulation um, a function uh, is a nice uh, tool that can be used to identify uh, early shock or cryptogenic shock. Um, it's actually used uh, pretty routinely over in Europe. Um, and it's part of the um, uh, management and diagnosis of um, shock. So published a couple... Um, uh, well, letters to the editor with uh, and both resuscitation and jam neurology. Letters to the editor, as I uh, uh, affectionately term them, uh, academic trolling. Um, so basically, I've been saying this for years. You know, and we'd see a lot of patients being managed post uh, cardiac arrest, and um, you know, particularly in uh, cardiac ICU, where you know I'd uh, regularly round, and we'd see these individuals with a pH of 7.5, you know, just to really make sure that we're breathing extra well for these, these patients. Like, guys, this isn't, 
the right thing to do. Um, because as you um, become more alkalemic, it actually shifts that oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left. And what uh, you're doing is essentially converting that uh, normal hemoglobin to the functional equivalent of uh, 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 fetal hemoglobin. So although your pulse ox may be look you know, may look good, um, you're not unloading that oxygen at the tissues that most need that oxygen. So namely the brain um, following cardiac arrest. So that's that's a real kind of um, uh, I felt passionately about that as you may imagine, and um, so that's something I always think about. And the mitochondrial function, um, you know, uh, Mike Danino, Beth Israel Deacon has done a lot of work on thymine and its role in uh, mitochondrial function. Um, you know, again, I mentioned the Victus trial, and, and um, there are a lot of other uh, studies that, you know, over the past couple of years have focused on this mitochondrial resuscitation concept. And, and again, I think that's going to be part of our, in one form or fashion, um, part of our normal uh, resuscitation regimen um, in the future. So overall, um, so it's kind of a little background on shock. It's not just blood pressure is my point. And um, I'm really thinking about a lot of different elements of, the, of that uh, pathway of um, oxygen delivery and consumption in parallel when I'm managing that uh, patient in the acute setting. And so other sort of resuscitation principles just to, I wanted to convey to make sure that we're all on the same page is, you know, um, number one, just diagnose and anticipate badness, you know, um, try to think, what am I dealing with? And, and I think of everything in sort of uh, uh, three components, kind of like with acute kidney injury, of, you know, pre-renal, renal, post-renal, you know, many people are taught. I think of, okay, what's the exact problem? What's the underlying cause of that problem? you know, that etiology, and what, um, according to the na natural evolution of this problem, um, is uh, what's sort of the next phase, and what can I anticipate, and what can I anticipate, both good and bad, from the therapies that I'm providing. And so I'm, again, thinking of all those in parallel, and um, uh, trying to figure out what I'm uh, dealing with, and how to optimally manage it. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, you cannot, as you all know, in managing these complex uh, critically ill patients, particularly in our institution, uh, you cannot think of um, management um, sequentially. You really need to think in, in parallel and hit uh, a lot of different um, therapies, in, you know, in, um, concomitantly. Uh, one of the things, whether it's in um, medicine, or in sepsis, or in life, you know, you've got to have source control, okay? You, you can't uh, put a band-aid on the problem. You need to get to the source. And many times the source in sepsis is either mechanical correction and drainage of that um, infectious source, as well as um, administering uh, the appropriate antimicrobials in a timely fashion. And, um, and then other elements, how do I support the body as it works its way through this inflammatory cascade and all the various um, um, phases of the uh, evolution of the disease and the therapies that I uh, addressed earlier. These, these are just kind of how I think about this. So um, again, just to touch on a few other uh, elements of resuscitation, um, you know, I think uh, you really want to correct the metabolic acidosis. And the way I do that um, 
is uh, most commonly is with lactate clearance. I mean, there are a lot of different tools to, to do this, but I think that's a, a pretty accepted one. It's non-specific, obviously, but um, it gives you a good um, uh, overview of you know where you're headed, where you are now. Um, you know, renin is another uh, marker in Gleason's paper out of France last year in critical care medicine. Um, and uh, some other data in renin, some of which you'll be seeing over the next month in the Blue Journal, hopefully, uh, it shows that it's, um, it's a relevant, has a relevant role in, um, in uh, this kind of resuscitation as well. Then you want to optimize into organ function, I and mean, there's nothing novel here. So again, kind of what I mentioned earlier, in medicine and in life, the sooner a problem is recognized and appropriately corrected, the better the outcome. It's a famous person uh, said that. Yours truly, maybe not famous, infamous. Um, so back to uh, so the, of these various elements of. Uh, resuscitation and shock. Um, you know, we could address each one of these, and each one of these could be its own full day-long lecture, but this is really where I want to focus today. Um, but I wanted to make sure we all had, we're on the same page as I do address the, these issues. So the macro circulation. And ultimately, in order for good flow of blood, you need to have a adequate pressure. You know, what that exact pressure is, we don't entirely know because each person is a little bit different. Um, I mean, if uh, show some data that we, you know, that um, address kind of our generally accepted goal map, but, you know, recently in JAMA, there's the uh, 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 65 trial that kind of questions that in the elderly. So, I mean, it, I think each person is a little bit different, each disease process a little bit different, um, and we just have to tailor it to each individual. But MAP, regardless, does matter. So what's the significance in terms of outcome? Um, so at least, uh, as you can see here, um, Alan Jones uh, down in Mississippi uh, showed that uh, in hospital, linked in hospital mortality with the lowest systolic blood pressure that was identified in the emergency department. And um, you can see here, uh, any systolic, single episode of systolic uh, blood pressure less than 80 in the emergency department, um, you, know, uh, you know, equated to an increased risk of um, death in the um, inpatient setting. And, uh, you know, almost 20% of patients actually had um, some degree of hypotension as defined by, in his study of less than 100 systolic blood pressure. Okay, so the, uh, you can see here the inpatient mortality. Bottom line, avoid hypotension if at all possible. And as you'll see here shortly, um, when you do identify it, treat it promptly. Um, here's a nice study. Um, out of uh, Cleveland Clinic from a few years ago. Um, Cleveland Clinic, they basically, every patient in the hospital is wired for uh, a clinical, um, you know, vital sign information. So their ORs, they're um, in the inpatient setting, you know, uh, PACU, ICU, everywhere. They're just, um, all the clinical data that's being generated by these patients from a vital sign standpoint is being ingested 
and can be uh, analyzed. And what they saw here is that even a single episode of uh, MAP of less than 65 equated to an increased risk of AKI and uh, myocardial injury um, uh, during uh, that hospitalization. And this, by the way, this study in, in particular is uh, performed on over 30,000 uh, patients that had undergone non-cardiac uh, general elective surgeries. So what about in the ICU? Um, it's the same group at Cleveland Clinic um, just a uh, little less than a couple of years ago. Showed similar um, uh, results with both AKI and myocardial injury um, and, and mortality. And the crazy thing about this, we, you know, many of us say, okay, MAP has maintained a MAP of 65. But if you look in the left-hand uh, um, columns here uh, under mortality, 65 um, it actually had a statistically uh, significant increased risk of mortality as compared to a map of 85. You know, and that uh, suggests that maybe um, Pierre Aspar's work in, in um, France uh, in that sepsis spam study a few years back in the New England Journal, uh, there may actually be some um, credence to what he's saying in terms of maintaining a, a little bit of higher map. But again, this is these are uh, general... Uh, findings and large numbers of patients. And um, so what do you do with the patient in front of you? And, uh, and that, that depends, but these are generalizations that can be obtained from large data sets. All right, so let's just get fluids if somebody's uh, hypotensive, right? So, um, so do fluids work? You know, um, I think, uh, you know, fluids initially in a lot of patients probably makes sense. You know, as much as it pains me to give it, it, it it's probably the right thing um, because it's readily available. It's cheap. It's not really invasive when somebody already has a line. And you, you test them out with it, and hopefully you can avoid a, um, an otherwise unnecessary ICU admission. Um, and presumptively, it's diagnostic and therapeutic for those that are uh, body-responsive. So I think it's not an unreasonable trial to give um, patients uh, when first identified. Um, but, you know, you don't want to keep giving it um, without a real uh, more definitive endpoint in sight. And so uh, we know that hypovolemia is bad. You know, I mentioned cholera that I've seen in Haiti and dealt with, uh, hemorrhage that we all deal with, you know, on a regular basis in the MICU with our various GI bleeds, uh, or they deal with the trauma with uh, hemorrhage in that fashion. Um, and then, uh, and we also know about a third of ICU patients, um, uh, excuse me, uh, in, in a study of about 30,000 ICU patients, about a quarter um, of uh, AKI cases resulted from uh, hypovolemia in their um, assessment. So, I mean, it's, hypovolemia does happen and it's, it's common and it uh, is a common cause of problems um, in terms of resulting in uh, uh, AKI. So I think that's, uh, you know, we can all understand that. The, um, just wanted to touch on the Frank Starling curve. And, the, and um, you know, I think what's important as we get fluids in order to get somebody on that flat part of the Starling curve is to just regularly assess their degree of volume responsiveness. You know, it's not a, sat, a static uh, measurement. It's an ongoing dynamic assessment. Oops. Um, uh, dynamic assessment um, that uh, needs to constantly be assessed by us at the bedside in one uh, way or another. 
I mean, whether it's using uh, IVC collapsibility, stroke volume variation with our um, measurements, air pulse pressure variation, you know, um, all the various tools at our disposal, whether it's ultrasound or otherwise, um, you know, I think it's important to track that. Um, and so, uh, you know, why, why do we even assess volume status? So, um, you know, only half of our patients actually respond to an IV uh, fluid bolus. And then, um, so the other half, which, you know, you can argue, uh, do not respond to an IV fluid bolus, okay? So it's, it's a flip of a coin uh, whether you're actually going to benefit from a fluid bolus. And that's a, from this nice uh, JAMA article a few years ago. Um, so the, the issue is if the half that do not respond to the fluid bolus, but, you know, are getting that fluid, um, they didn't need it. And um, so they will have received a therapy that actually is harmful. And so, um, so this is kind of uh, an argument against giving that fluid. Um, and because we know that overall hypervolemia is bad. You know, so I haven't, um, I just assembled this, uh, and there are plenty of other studies that can further um, uh, back this statement. And these are just a handful, and I ran out of room. Um, but these are, uh, you know, worthwhile ones to look at. But I mean, we know that, so death, we know uh, the lungs with the FACT trial, um, and with the kidneys, uh, and, uh, and they sort of the occurrence of nephrosarca, or that sort of edema of the nephrons themselves, and um, the renal capsule, you get, you know, what I kind of term a, uh, a renal compartment syndrome, frankly. Um, so... My whole, uh, a big push that I have, you know, I, let's give a, let's give a little bit of fluid bowl. Let's give 500 cc's, see how things go, 250 cc's, however, whatever the situation may warrant. But don't, you don't necessarily need to fill the tank like we're traditionally taught. Instead, just shrink the tank. And we talked about uh, um, preload and, um, you know, being a component of the blood volume, but also the compliance of the venous system. And let's just shrink the venous system. Um, it, in many cases, so we can minimize the amount of fluid that may uh, not otherwise be necessary and may actually cause harm. So what do the septic shock guidelines um, say? So we give, give crystalloids, um, you know, and uh, again, makes sense in the ED patient because many of those patients don't present immediately. They may have decreased PO intake for, you know, during the uh, uh, day or two preceding their um, arrival in the ED. So it's not unreasonable. Um, and, uh, you know, in order to avoid um, excess crystalloids, you can try albumin, particularly in those hypoalbuminemic patients. Um, but if you can't, you know, achieve this with fluids, um, you know, and, and uh, it's time to go with pressors. And um, when you see people giving fluids, 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 um, you know, you got to recall, you know, Einstein's you know, definition of insanity, right? doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And, you know, at some point you have to shift over um, to uh, decreasing that venous compliance. So norepinephrine is recommended as the first line. Um, second line, it's either um, vasopressin or epi, which again, um, epi, I think it doesn't make much sense at all. Um, because if you're on high enough norepinephrine, you need a second line um, vasopressor therapy. Why are you uh, going to that same class? to um, target those, that little hidden alpha receptor that just didn't get to that high dose norepi. It just doesn't make sense in my mind. 
you need to attack, you know, our bodies um, manage hypotension intrinsically with a multi-pathway um, um, uh, in a multi-pathway fashion. Um, if our bodies shoot out a bunch of, um, you know, catecholamines, they don't just get more, you know? Um, so anyway, so like from this standpoint, for these recommendations, I have a low threshold ad vasopressin as that second agent, um, based on these, uh, W-amine, it all depends on, you know, obviously, as you know, about the squeeze, um, inotropic assessment. So right now with people on, higher dose norepinephrine as defined by greater than um, 0 0.2 uh, mics per kg per minute. Um, uh, they have uh, typically, and this is in multiple studies, um, over a 50% mortality. Um, and, and in my mind, that's completely, you know, uh, inadequate. I mean, how I, I um, am just boggled by, the idea that we should be okay with this number. You know, we have, you know, uh, you know, football players in the NFL wearing, you know, pink ribbons on their, uh, you know, on their uh, jerseys, which I fully support, obviously. I mean, with, you know, um, addressing, calling attention to um, health problems that, you know, are many times preventable screening. But at the same time, when, um, it, it bothers me when way more people are dying from sepsis and uh, we don't have that same degree of visibility and we're just, uh, you know, accepting, you know, more than half of people uh, requiring those vasopressor doses to, to die. Um, we have better therapies in our disposal. I already mentioned this. So in my mind, we, we need a new approach. Um, greater than 50% mortalities. Uh, um, Mike? <laughs> Yeah, please. There is a question from Catherine. Okay. Uh, she said, recently when I've seen large amounts of fluid given, it is because the bedside ultrasound looks like the patient's underfilled. Uh, do you have any thoughts about when to limit fluids despite these bedside ultrasound findings? Yes. Um, so actually, Rory and I um, just published an um, editorial about a year ago or a year and a half ago on that very topic. Um, and and, you know, when I'm rounding and I tell the teams, you know, okay, if, as I, you know, I'm in my, just finished my first cup of coffee and I, uh, at a pee, I'm dry as, a, you know, a bone. If you put a uh, ultrasound probe on my IVC, you're going to see it be the most collapsible thing in the world. But does that mean I'm in shock? Does that mean I need IV fluids? No. Um, so I think the you know, I appreciate the value of um, dynamic assessments of preload, sort of the assessment of preload responsiveness. And um, I think the trends are important, but also the clinical scenario is important. So you have to look at a shock state and um, uh, address the preload responsiveness. But if you're um, continuing to demonstrate preload responsiveness, despite an adequate um, fluid challenge that is addressing the underlying um, cause of that preload responsiveness. So I, you know, then, uh, it's time to, uh, think, okay, what, what else should I be addressing? And, and is there ongoing hemorrhage? Is there some alternative cause? Um, or am I, is the person's albumin like 2.1 and it's just, I'm third spacing everything. Cause I mean, even when you give those fluids, um, you know, 15, 30 minutes, you know, the crystal, the, 
uh, bulk of those crystalloids administered have already third spaced. And so you're just going to be chasing your tail and, and you know, turning a, a human into the, you know, the state puff marshmallow man um, if you continue down that path. So, um, so my sort of algorithmic thought on the matter is, are they in shock or are they not? Um, if they're not, I don't give fluids. If I, um, uh, or if they, you know, if we think they're hypovolemia-induced AKI, then I'll give small fluids to kind of help overcome that. Um, if they are in shock, you know, I think it's, and you think, and you're seeing um, uh, on the some fashion volume res preload responsive or not preload responsive. If they're not preload pre responsive, I will not typically give fluids. If they are, I will. And then I am constantly, you know, reassessing. And if I hit a certain amount of fluids that I feel are like are not um, addressing the underlying problem, given that clinical scenario, then I'll, you know, reorient myself and pursue a different path. And in addition, there is another question. So then you stop after 30 milliliters per kg and how often do we reassess after a 500 milliliter bolus? These dynamic measurements take time and reassessment, which may be why fluid is given following a snapshot approach. Yeah. I mean, you got to be practical, right? And I'm certainly sympathetic to that. Um, and that's, you know, I, I do not typically give more than 30 C's uh, per kilo. And um, I usually do it on ideal body weight because CMS is out on that judgment. And, you know, and just because it's a lower amount typically in America. And, um, and then I'll reassess. But I mean, the problem is we have to juggle lots of patients that, with lots of things going on simultaneously. And so, I mean, your, your point is well taken. Um, the, uh, but I think not, you know, I don't give more than 30 cc's. Um, and again, this is, these are ED patients for the 30 cc's. I, I will typically document in, um, for inpatients that have been around for, you know, weeks on end, unless they're just NPO for multiple days, they're generally not whole body um, volume down. They're just intravascular volume down. It's important to separate those kind of concepts in your head uh, when managing this. I know it's not, a, it's an inadequate answer, but I think nobody really has the exact answer to your question. So, um, so how do we do better from the mortality standpoint um, with managing septic shock? So, um, you know, I think we have to just, uh, what I do, so we have to have source control. Um, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics can try and true then deescalate um, per the antibiogram and the culture results. Um, earlier administration yield for, of appropriate antibiotics yields better outcomes. You know, um, Kumar and subsequent ones by him and others have highlighted that. Um, and frankly, as a side note, and some other things I'm working on. Um, so how do you more quickly deescalate? And how do you, um, you know, with 40-ish percent of individuals, 50% of individuals having culture negative sepsis, you know, what are we missing? We're missing a lot. And it's taking too long to get uh, culture results back. And, um, and many of the culture results that we do get, we're having to debate whether or not they're um, uh, contaminants or not. And so it's just, uh, I feel like our diagnostics are limiting our ability to effectively tailor our therapeutics. Um, appropriately. But anyway, that's a side note. Um, so I, I generally uh, 
then think if we're, we're using antibiotics in a way of um, broad, keeping it broad and then de-escalating it because we don't want to miss somebody who's going to particularly benefit from a therapy. Why aren't we having the same sort of um, approach when managing vasopressors? And then we personalize it according to their responsiveness. You know, um, the uh, uh, actually, so oh, yeah. So Andy and I wrote a little thing that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks in uh, critical care medicine. On the topic, uh, Mink Chawla wrote a nice, um, with Marlise Osterman in, in uh, critical care, wrote a nice uh, um, uh, article on that. Um, but it's, a, I think, a reasonable um, uh, argument to make. Um, and then, because when you do provide, um, hit things from uh, multiple sides simultaneously, um, I mean, we do this in sedation, right? You have these synergistic effects um, that um, uh, give you a better, that help you attain your goal more um, easily and effectively while simultaneously mitigating the side effects um, of those uh, therapies should you try to achieve that goal with a single therapy. So if you jack up the propofol to, you know, 80 you know, that's probably not going to be good for you or your um, uh, pancreas or you're going to get profound fusion syndrome. Um, instead of that, why don't we give some kind of um, narcotic uh, adjunct to minimize our um, sedation requirements? So, I, I mean, the, I think the concept is sound. And um, Mike, yep. uh, Ash had a question. Does androtensin 2 have any impact on propagation of lung injury? It's a very good question. We should address that later in this talk. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll get to it. Um, so uh, physiologic response to basic. So normally our bodies, you know, shoots out uh, catecholamines, you know, ADH via the posterior pituitary and the renin angiotensin aldosterone uh, system. You know, angiotensinogen produced in the liver, uh, renin, you know, produced by the juxtaglomerular um, apparatus uh, due to uh, hypoperfusion of the kidneys. Renin cleaves angiotensin to angiotensin 1. ACE, you know, ACE is ubiquitous, and uh, we typically associate it with the lung just because, you know, as you all know, the, uh, we have the highest concentration of um, capillary endothelium in the, in the lung. Um, so that's why we see it, um, you know, lung injury disproportionately affecting um, ACE function. But it's it's everywhere, and but inch one goes to inch two, and then kind of stimulates this sort of uh, um, feedback loop, and also constricts. Um, and so, really, it's a our bodies normally have this three pronged approach to um, maintaining uh, blood pressure, and and thank God that our bodies do that, right? I mean, um, if if our bodies need we have so many different sort of redundant systems that have developed from an evolutionary standpoint. And it only makes sense that one of these key um, uh, elements of keeping us alive um, is, you know, uh, three times, uh, we have three different um, manners to do that. So let's kind of talk about um, blood pressure management, right? So it's those three pathways. So we have various um, anti-hypertensives, um, that we use to address the catecholamine uh, pathway. And then we have uh, anti-hypotensive, so to treat um, shock. You know, look at all these, these four different ones, but norepi being the most common. Um, vasopressin, you know, we have some 
uh, were recently nephrolysin inhibitors, you know, combined with um, ARBs. Um, there's also a, a, a therapy that addresses brain um, ADH release in the first one. We have anti-hypotensives, you know, anti-shock, which we typically use vasopressin here in the United States. And then uh, the RAS, you know, we're slamming the RAS with all these um, uh, therapies to decrease uh, the degree of hypertension and all around the globe with lisinopril being the most commonly prescribed antihypertensive in the U.S. Yet, what again uh, boggles my mind um, is like how um, people are reluctant to think of, um, hey, maybe uh, maybe the um, RAS is bad um, and, and causes hypertension. Let's block it. So by the very fact that we're blocking it um, means that uh, it the RAS increases blood pressure. So why would administering a, a the body that we're trying to block to treat hypertension, not be a relevant topic to address when dealing with shock. Doesn't make sense. So recap, shock's bad. It's got a lot of causes. Blood pressure is important. You know, how do we do that? You know, fluids are reasonable, but too much are bad. Um, you know, pressors, you know, you don't want to give somebody pressors if it means they're going to need a unit bed that they don't necessarily need. Um, and then our uh, bodies have uh, a few mechanisms to maintain blood pressure. You know, catecholamines are, um, they're effective um, up to a certain extent, but uh, you know, there's a nice study, a review in JAMA um, out of Canada, which highlighted the increased risk of dysrhythmias with catecholamines. And uh, we know in lots of studies that we can have uh, lactate generation with epi specifically. You know, from uh, Gretchen Sacha, also at Cleveland Clinic, um, vasopressin, she uh, identified that you know, only um, half of the time vasopressin actually yields an increase in a meaningful increase in blood pressure. And it's slow acting, typically taking about six hours. So, I mean, is that really what you want when we know that even a minute matters of hypotension? You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense again. What about the RAS? I mean, this is what we're going to talk about. So let me see what time. So, okay, I'm going to have to zip through some of this. I won't. So, and I'll kind of zip through the history. Um, you know, this is all kind of the RAS uh, uh, discovery, which is, you know, these famous, the gold blot kidney, um, you know, this uh, gold blot uh, basically clamped the renal um, artery um, and induced, um, you know, hypertension in dogs. So they realized that, the importance of the kidney and, and uh, blood pressure regulation. Uh, a couple groups, both one in um, Indiana and then uh, Ohio and the other in Argentina, um, utilized this technique and isolated um, angiotensin II. Okay, and they uh, they named it hypertensin. Okay, hypertensin, um, and then they showed that. Uh, converting um, that the kidney secreted renin and identified a hypertensinogen to hypertensin ultimately. And then uh, Irvine Page um, um, identified angiotonin sort of uh, contemporaneously. So we have hypertensin and angiotonin, same hormone essentially. They said, we got to sort this out because it's getting um, way too confusing. Um, and then they, especially as they actually, um, synthesized it, um, they took, uh, 
uh, cow's uh, blood isolated angiotensin two, and um, and uh, began utilizing it initially in animals and then in uh, humans. Um, the Seba uh, uh, Pharmaceuticals um, uh, marketed as hypertensin as well, and again this kind of debate raged on what to call it. And they said, let's get together in Ann Arbor. Um, the Argentina folks, the Indiana, Ohio folks got together and said, okay, hypertensin plus angiotonin equals angiotensin. That's how 1958, how we got to that. It's a little trivia for you. So if I were to get blood, uh, get your blood and assess uh, angiotensin two and kind of, um, or infuse angiotensin two is a better way to say it at a, rate that is consistent with your normal physiologic amount, it'd be about uh, roughly about five nanograms per kilo per minute is the, the amount that I would need to um, sub, you know, provide you in order to get keep that normal amount, a little bit less, two and a half, actually. Uh, so here's the report in uh, 1961, the first case of its use clinically in humans. Um, it's actually 21 um, uh, patients. And it had a lot, it was very effective. Um, and it was used widely for like 35 years. Okay. And um, it's uh, tons of case reports, experimental studies. Um, it's mostly in Europe, but really uh, it's used in the US as well. And um, over a thousand uh, studies um, really assessed its use um, in, in humans, and which is pretty crazy. And, uh, and then, um, so Larry Bussey and Marley's Osterman out in uh, London and, and I, um, and actually Osman Ali, uh, you may remember who helped me with the Athos uh, 3 trial here. Um, uh, we looked at um, every study um, in which angiotensin 2 is used in humans with uh, hypotension to determine um, you know, how, whether it was effective in raising blood pressure, you know, um, we just wanted to get the data and see how it was used. So we identified a total of, um, 24 studies, 350 ish patients, and we, um, looked at it with and without the ethos, um, database, um, patients. And then, um, interestingly, as a side note, um, it's actually being given, like people are getting a little out of control. They're giving it in, in pregnant women to, early in their pregnancy to see if they were going to be at risk of developing preeclampsia. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is like the reason why IRBs were formed. Um, but it, it was effective and no problems to the babies actually. Um, so anyway, so we looked at this, uh, at those data um, of that 180 patients historically, um, this is how it was broken down. Some uh, blood pressure, medication overdose, dialysis patients, uh, septic hemorrhage, cardiogenic even, okay, and then undifferentiated shock. Well, here's the septic patients that were given and angiotensin II, um, some of the main studies, and it was extremely effective at raising blood pressure in these individuals. You can see 175% uh, percent increase in, in blood pressure. Um, and in cardiogenic shock, this and the one study in New England Journal, um, a 216% increase in, in blood pressure when administered cardiogenic shock, which I don't recommend. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, um, I don't recommend for, you know, just routinely, you know, somebody's hypotensive is different than, 
Um, other causes of shock, you know, we have those reasons down below. But it was, you know, pretty uniformly very effective at raising blood pressure, which, you know, we obviously have a, a good idea. And one thing that we saw in looking at these old papers, I was like, oh, my God, look, like, first of all, going through old um, articles is it's kind of humorous, a little bit. Um, uh, it's, it's certainly old school in terms of how it's done and very, the narrative describing that what was done is, is pretty, uh, interesting, very different from how we report data now. We saw, um, 18 patients were given, um, uh, angiotensin II when they were pulseless. And, uh, of those 18 we said, Hey, this was never really formally, um, discussed. 14 out of 18 had, uh, ROSC. And which is pretty insane. And this is before we have all these, you know, um, you know, you know, other therapies to um, as adjuncts for uh, ROS. Um, so anyway, we wrote about that last year in critical care medicine. So, um, you know, uh, anyway, so the 1990s, uh, if for whatever reason, this is the craziest thing. In 1996, uh, angiotensin II production was halted. Um, because uh, SIBA uh, and Sandoz uh, form, so SIBA is making um, angiotensin II. Um, it was making, um, right, talking with uh, folks who are in that realm, are saying about it, like over 90 million a year. But when uh, Sandoz and SIBA merged, they formed Novartis. And Novartis said, okay, that's not enough money. Because um, why would we want to focus our efforts on production on a drug that's only going to be used for a few days at most? And only a handful of patients uh, globally, you know, and there's a picture of um, uh, Willie Sutton, you know, uh, you know, let's, you know, why do you rob banks, Mr. Sutton, you know, it's a famous bank robber, because that's where the money is. And so that's where Novartis, why Novartis actually uh, stopped production of angiotensin II in 96. And because they wanted to convert to um, focusing on outpatient hypertension management. Because that's where the money was. When about a third of the globe has hypertension, and they're going to need therapy for decades and not days, so it's pretty crazy and sort of just disappeared, kind of like the the ring and Lord of the Rings, you know, legend turned to myth and whatever. And then so um, uh, we had kind of a new renewed focus of distributive shock, you know, with Manny Rivers stuff, um, uh, James Russell in Canada, you know looked at BAST and looked at uh, vasopressin and said, hey, there's, maybe we should uh, readdress, we actually can do something about septic shock and we should maybe do it in a logical way. And so Ronaldo Bologna down in Australia said, okay, uh, he as a nephrologist and intensivist uh, got angiotensin II, gave it to his sheep. And the group that received angiotensin II after he or induced a peritonitis in them showed that um, their urine output actually uh, increased seven times the control, the amount of the control and had improved uh, creatinine clearance. And the blood pressure uh, increased as well substantially. And the thought is, you know, you have ACE here that um, um, focuses on, um, so angiotensin II squeezes the efferent arterial, um, increasing pressure there and increasing glomerular uh, filtering pressure in maintaining urine output and blood flow to the nephrons. Um, and that's the whole thought of ACE, right? When we dilate the efferent and to decrease that pressure head on the glomeruli. So it makes sense what he found. And um, so he talked to Mink Chala down at GW at the time. And they, uh, he sent Larry Bussey, his fellow, 
um, out to uh, Germany to this synthetic peptide maker. And Larry uh, got them to make a synthetic human angiotensin two. So for all you fellows out there, that's, uh, that's what a really dedicated fellow does. I just wanted to highlight that. Um, so Bobby, you want it? <laughs> the, um, anyway, so uh, uh, that's what happened. They trialed it in Athos and, um, and published in Athos and critical care. It's an RCT, kind of pilot RCT, 20 patients, 10 and 10. Uh, with and without angiotensin 2. One of the side effects of angiotensin 2 in these shock patients was actually hypertension in shock patients. I mean, if you can even call that a uh, side effect. So um, we're part of the ATHOS-3 trial. And so over 300 patients randomized um, after they're over uh, requiring over uh, 0.2 norepi uh, equivalent dose of um, uh, you know, it, it, uh, on a stable dose of greater than that over three hours, um, maintaining that map. And we said, okay, we're going to randomize them either to placebo or to ANG2. Uh, we were blinded. Um, and in the, the study was developed in conjunction with uh, FDA guidance along the way. They said, look, you, you just need to isolate angiotensin 2 and determine whether it raises MAP. And so that's, they said that needs to be your primary outcome. So if you're running a, a company, you say, okay, whatever the FDA says from that standpoint, it makes sense to do um, to ensure approval if it's uh, if the data are positive. Um, so what do you know? Uh, it was uh, very effective at raising uh, mean arterial pressure. Okay, so it was uh, uh, over seventy percent actually uh, uh, had that increase in um, pressure, and uh, with angiotensin two, and um, uh, you can see the map. Uh, difference is actually sustained over the 48 hours following um, its administration as well. It was statistically significant out to like 18 zeros. Okay, um, so very clearly it is um, a uh, an effective vasopressor. It had uh, um, at 28 days um, a trend towards improved mortality, both a p value of 0.12, but um, you know. And my feeling about uh, mortality is that, you know, like with all of you and your successful careers, you didn't get to where you are by doing well on one test. Okay. I really nailed the SAT. No, it's a cumulative effect of a lot of little things done right. And I think we can all appreciate that those outcomes are similarly important in critically ill patients. You know, you may do great event management, but if you don't know how to uh, mobilize that patient um, afterwards and they they're weak and deconditioned and get a aspiration pneumonia and die, you know, that's, uh, you know, you need to be, you need to provide the full complement of therapies in order to improve mortality. So to think that a, a single presser is going to change mortality, that, that shouldn't even be our focus in my mind. It shouldn't be our focus for sedation or any kind of intervention other than clear cut ones like intubate or don't intubate in somebody with respiratory failure. Mike, there was another question from Ed. What is the half-life? So half-life is uh, like less than a minute, um, actually a couple minutes. So the, uh, the onset is less than a minute. Um, it's pretty insane. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll, we can talk about that in a little bit. I just want to get through some of this. Um, it's short, bottom line. Um, okay. So even though I'm kind of anti-mortality, um, is an endpoint in any ICU studies um, for the most part. Um, let's look at kind of subgroups that may benefit 
uh, from a mortality standpoint in the, in the ATHOS-3 trial. So we published this. We showed that those on uh, with AKI uh, requiring renal replacement therapy, their 28-day survival um, was statistically <coughs> significantly improved if they received angiotensin II. So James Tomlin, um, we showed that uh, most recently, I guess a month and a half ago or so, it came out in critical care that uh, those with a high ANG1 to ANG2 ratio of greater of at least 1.63 um, uh, demonstrated uh, improved mortality. And the thought is, um, what's particularly interesting, ANG1, ANG2 ratio is a marker of ACE dysfunction um, or function. So if uh, ACE is dysfunctional, um, then ANG1 levels build up. And ANG1, so it's not so much the lack of ANG2 per se that causes the hypotension. We believe it's more of the ACE dysfunction and ANG1 builds up and it gets metabolized to bradykinin and ANG1-7 uh, and ANG1-9 that actually are active vasodilators. Um, so it's, it's pretty crazy from a uh, like what's really going on in sepsis. So anyway, those with that high ratio um, had an improved mortality with if they received angiotensin II supplementation to kind of break that uh, vicious cycle um, of the RAS dysfunction. And then those who uh, only required um, that physiologic dose of angiotensin II by within 30 minutes of its uh, initiation um, actually had an improved mortality. Um, so I presented this um, uh, abstract at uh, Europe, where is it? Um, uh, in, in Brussels, um, and, uh, and we have a 67 percent survival for those that got uh, just only a minimal dose, kind of low dose uh, uh, angiotensin two versus those that did not get angiotensin two, or excuse me, versus those that got that required more than. Um, uh, five nanograms per kilo per minute or more than that physiologic dose. Um, the thought being with that is um, there's a discrete ACE dysfunction and um, a deficiency of angiotensin II that continues to propagate this sort of ANG1 uh, uh, kind of creation because if you underperfuse the kidneys, you have high renin levels, right? And so if, uh, and then renin ultimately results in increased angiotensin one. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and with, in the setting of ACE dysfunction from capillary injury in the setting of sepsis or in COVID, as we'll get to in a sec, um, you'll have, uh, active vasodilatation, but angiotensin two, when administered, it actually feeds back and, and will shut down renin production. And so you stop that vicious cycle of ang one, um, accumulation. So, Here's some other kind of uh, groups that we've looked at. Um, people with NCH liver disease, you know, largely because of uh, angiotensinogen, uh, low angiotensinogen uh, production by the liver, but also other reasons. Pre-morbid ACE inhibitor use. Um, there are lots of cases there that show that. Um, and we saw that as a subgroup analysis in ATHOS-3 that that group may benefit. We have uh, intrinsic ACE defects, you know, some of these, this uh, sepsis, ARDS, um, and these are all sort of indicative of that, those ACE defects. Um, we showed that people who are particularly sick uh, may benefit from this well. Um, okay, and cardiac arrest, you know, I brought that up, um, published that last year, and uh, I guess in 2019 twice. Um, uh, 
published that in critical care medicine, basically saying, you know, in cardiac arrest with these 14 out of 18 patients that we identified that had ROSC, um, you know, it seems like a reasonable therapy because, you know, in cardiac arrest, we want to increase afterload in order to improve diastolic pressure to improve coronary perfusion pressure. Because that's really what we want. We don't want to stress the heart out by giving a catecholamine to squeeze it further and cause further dysrhythmias. We just want to increase the, increase the coronary perfusion pressure. And this being a non-catecholamine that's effective at raising blood pressure may be a good uh, uh, therapy worth, certainly worth studying is the argument. All right, so COVID-19, vasodilatory shock. Um, I won't go through all this. I, was, I really went into a rabbit hole this morning about all these numbers of COVID to get it correct. But ultimately, about a third of patients in the ICU in Italy had shock, okay, from COVID, um, had shock associated with it. And with our uh, institution, with how many sick patients actually uh, or critically ill patients exist from COVID, um, there's a, a lot of patients. So <laughs> what John uh, Chow, Mike Mazzeffi, and I uh, did, uh, we just published in, um, a couple of weeks ago in anesthesia and analgesia, um, an editorial saying, hey, um, this may be worth looking into because um, like for angiotensin 2 in the setting of shock, because not only um, do we have that endothelial dysfunction that I previously described in, in uh, because COVID is basically a similar structure as uh, the SARS virus, right? The first uh, uh, coronavirus that really caused this kind of these pro the extent of problems that we're dealing with now, or to some extent. And what they showed um, during SARS and afterwards that angiotensin II actually, not only does it um, competitively uh, bind to ACE2, um, you know, to prevent or to limit um, uh, COVID binding or, or I guess SARS binding at the time. Um, it also down regulates ACE2 expression um, on the cell walls themselves. So, uh, so it's uh, it could be for those in shock who would already potentially benefit from angiotensin II. They, that's, this is just one more reason why it would be worthwhile effectively studying uh, clinically in this scenario. It makes a ton of sense to me. And um, so I talked to. A few folks um, in uh, um, both in mostly, mostly at the Northwell um, Hospital System, and they're actually uh, utilizing it up there pretty widely, and are um, uh, going to be looking at that on a bigger uh, level. But it's they're uh, pretty convinced that um, clinically the effect is as uh, we have described. Uh, we followed up with just so you know, I think it was last week we came out in critical care with another. Um, uh, article like Larry Bussey and John Chow and Ashish Khan and I uh, did in Kirk here last week that will give you more information on if you want. But anyway, um, to kind of summarize, men must be taught as if you taught them not and things unknown proposed as things forgot. And I say this because, you know, Andrew tends to, it's has a long history um, that uh, we have, uh, you know, it's used so uh, widely around the globe and we're, um, pretty ubiquitously using uh, RAS inhibitors for hypertension. Yet, um, you know, this the idea of using angiotensin II is now somehow proposed as this novel, uh, um, you know, uh, vasopressor therapy, when in fact it's not novel at all. 
It's a, um, it's been around, it's been around before we've identified it and, um, and it's been widely used clinically and it's very effective, um, having used it numerous times. Um, and it's, it's pretty like, kind of crazy effective. So, um, it's worth studying, um, more, and I think worth, uh, utilizing clinically personally. So, um, I know I ran over a little bit, but hopefully that's helpful and give you a little insight into uh, my thoughts on the matter and happy to field further questions. Thank you, Mike. Does anyone have any questions? If I got you right, and we're trying to saturate those ACE2s, um, I guess what's your end point? I feel like if that's how we're combating COVID, I don't know um, my dosing, like what I'm shooting for. Are we still just doing the five nanograms? Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of ways to study it. I And to be 100% clear, I am not supporting using angiotensin II for individuals that are not in shock, okay? I'm saying if somebody needs a vasopressor and, and when they have COVID, use this one because you got that added benefit. Um, I'm not saying, oh, you have COVID, you're sitting in the IMC, the biocontainment unit, um, not in shock. Oh, let's try angiotensin II to minimize uh, infectivity of the virus. Um, so I'm, I'm no way supporting that. Um, so I, uh, I think the end point is resolution of shock. The way it